This evening's talk <coughs> is about kama. The word in Pali is kama, and the word in Sanskrit is karma. And beginning with some words from the Buddha. All beings are owners of their kama, heirs of their kama, born of their kama, related to their kama, supported by their kama. And I'd like to begin by saying something that I found to be um, very helpful and supportive throughout the various phases and stages of my practice over the years. As I began to connect with and more deeply understand the teaching of Kama. And this is that the teaching, the teaching about Kama, offers and brings to an even clearer light a path of practice that isn't based on fear of any higher authority, but rather founded on a clear understanding of the natural law of cause and effect as it relates to our human behavior. Consequently, the teaching on kama is not so much uh, uh, as something to be believed in as it is to be understood as we continue to come and see and know it in operation. It turns out that kama is not some unreachable or some sort of strange concept. As a Western woman, and I think I can pretty safely say this for most of us women and men here, who've been brought up and conditioned as Westerners, that it's actually been kind of a relief to discover this. The uh, teaching, uh, relevancy, and the understanding of kama, which is one of Buddhism's central themes, is really quite accessible and actually even quite ordinary. And maybe even so ordinary that somehow it may elude our very complicated minds. So what is kama? Etymologically, or the root of the word kama is action or deed. And in the context of the Dhamma, it's defined uh, more specifically and more clearly as action based on intention. Another way of saying this is action based on motivation, which is actually the way that the Tibetan Buddhist uh, explanation is that they use the word motivation more often than intention. In English, the word uh, motivation has a deeper and subtler meaning than does intention. So the motive or motivation behind or underneath or preceding the intention, we could say. Motivation or intention is what leads to deeds willfully done. Deeds done through volition. In the Buddhist teaching, kama refers only to intentional or volitional action. Intention or willful action is the mental factor responsible for kama. So kama is intention, which includes will, choice, and decision. The mental impetus, which leads to actions, both creative and destructive actions. This is the essence of karma. 
and some words from the Buddha. Monks, it is intention, I say, that is kama. Having willed, we create kama through body, speech, and mind. There are two sorts of volitional action that come from two flavors of motivation or two flavors of intention. Wholesome motivation, wholesome intention leads to um, wholesome wholesome actions, wholesome speech. It leads us to act or to speak in a wholesome way. An unwholesome motivation or unwholesome intention leads us to decide to act or speak in an unwholesome way. So we could say wholesome intention or motivation is wholesome karma. And unwholesome intention is unwholesome karma. Karma is a law of nature. The way of things. The law of cause and effect. Cause and result. So just like a rubber ball that's thrown against the wall bounces back. Skillful, unskillful, or neutral intention and action generates inevitable consequences. The law of karma is one of the fundamental natural laws through which we create vastly different realities. As we experientially, through our own direct immediate experience through our practice begin to understand the law of kama how these consequences are created combined and intensified throughout our life becomes more and more clarified the Dalai Lama said it's more important to understand kama than emptiness Something that I've discovered along, by way of my own deep practice, uh, to be really quite amazing and illuminating, is that in the context of the teachings and in our practice of the Dhamma, intention has a much uh, subtler meaning than it commonly has uh, in the way it's used and understood in everyday English. We usually think of intention as the link between an internal thought and its resultant external action. So, for instance, I did that intentionally. Or maybe in relationship to somebody else, you might ask, is that really what you meant to say? The Buddhist teaching tells us that All actions, speech, and all thoughts, no matter how fleeting, as well as the responses in the mind, the responses in the heart, to the various sensations received through each of the sense doors, the eye, ear, nose, tongue, touch, body, and mind, that all of this, without exception, contains elements of intention. This means that the mind, subtly or sometimes maybe not so subtly, volitionally or willfully chooses objects of awareness and reaps the karmic fruit of these choices. Intention is the factor Uh, that leads the mind to turn towards or to turn away from various potential objects of awareness. Intention is the factor that leads the mind, leads the heart to proceed or to not proceed in a particular direction. So from this perspective, it's intention that guides or governs 
how the heart, how the mind responds to stimuli. As our practice deepens, we begin to see and to know more and more clearly through our own direct experience that intention is the force, we could say, that organizes the movements of the mind. Which means that intention is what determines the states that are experienced by the mind, by the heart. The Buddha spoke many times about the fact that the motivation or the intention that leads to action is the mental impetus that is the determinant of our karmic fruit. In other words, the motivation or intention that leads to action is what determines the result of our action. So basically, this is the teaching of cause and effect, cause and result. Inherent in each intention or motive in the mind, in the heart, no matter how subtle, is an energy that's powerful enough to bring about some subsequent result. It's possible to actually experience this process occurring with mindfulness that's accompanied by a clear, deep, and strong concentration. And even on a very subtle level with mindfulness accompanied by access concentration. In light of this, consider that Even just one tiny thought that may not even be a particularly important thought isn't without consequence. It will result in at least a tiny speck of kama that's added to the stream of conditions that shape one's mental activity. If this speck is practiced over and over and over again, in the mind or expressed repeatedly through external expression in speech or in actions, the result, the karmic result, is strengthened in the form of one's character traits. And even through our bodily makeup, such as various physical expressions or even physical features, as well as in the form of our various verbal and active responses or reactions in relationship to the outer world. Even the responses and reactions that come to us from external sources can sometimes show up in similar repetitive ways. We've all experienced this. And be strengthened when we are unaware and are repeatedly acting out or practicing the specks of mental karma or kama that add to the stream of conditions that shape our mental activity. There's a Tibetan teaching that says something like, everything rests on the tip of motivation. So we could say it in a Theravada way, by saying everything rests on the tip of intention. A painful or destructive intention, a painful or destructive kama, doesn't have to be on a gross level for it to be effective. I I remember once many years ago uh, when I was sitting a, a retreat I remember getting uh, a note that was uh, not pleasing at all to me. So I proceeded to quite angrily uh, tear up that piece of paper that the note was written on. And even though uh, that piece of paper had absolutely no importance in and of itself, the action certainly 
had some effect on the quality of my mind, on the quality of my heart. And in contrast to this more recently, I was uh, cleaning off my desk one afternoon, and with a pretty neutral state of mind, I just simply threw away some scraps of paper. That action producing a very different effect on the quality of the mind, the quality of the heart. If we repeatedly act out of angry intention, the effects of this type of accumulation will become clearer and clearer and may develop to a more and more significant level. In the wheel of dependent origination, or what is sometimes called the wheel of interdependent arising, kama, specifically in terms of intention, is called the agent which fashions the mind, which fashions the heart. So in light of this discussion, I'd like to read some words from the Thai Buddhist scholar, Venerable Peyuto. Consider the specks of dust which come floating unnoticed into a room. There isn't one speck which is void of consequence. It is the same for the mind, but the weight of that consequence, in addition to being dependent on the amount of mental dust, is also related to the quality of the mind. For instance, specks of dust which alight onto a road surface have to be of a very large quantity before the road will seem to be dirty. Specks of dust which alight onto a floor, although of a much smaller quantity, may seem to make the floor dirtier than the road. A smaller amount of dust accumulating on a tabletop will seem dirty enough to cause irritation. An even smaller amount alighting on a mirror will seem dirty and will interfere with its functioning. A tiny speck of dust on a spectacle lens is perceptible and can impair vision. In the same way, motivation or intention, no matter how small, is not void of fruit. As the Buddha said, all kama, whether wholesome or unwholesome, bears fruit. There's no kama, no matter how small, which is void of fruit. And uh, Venerable Pietro goes on to say, in the same way, the mind has varying levels of refinement or clarity, depending on accumulated kama. As long as the mind is being used on a coarse level, no problem may be apparent. But if it is necessary to use the mind on a more refined level, previous unskillful kama, even on a minor scale, may become an obstacle. There's a wonderful <coughs> section of short uh, suttas in the Samyutta Nikaya called Connected Discourses in the Woods, where various practicing um, woodland devas, um, devas are, in case you don't know, devas are beings whose practice has brought them uh, Uh, to be dwelling for sometimes very long lengths of time, or maybe somewhat shorter lengths of time, in very beautiful states, but who aren't yet um, enlightened. They aren't yet completely free of suffering. So these suttas, um, where these various uh, woodland-dwelling devas are, they're about the devas approaching and speaking to certain monks who are also practicing in those same woodland thickets. And I'd like to share uh, a part of one of these short dialogues uh, with you as an illustration um, of what we're exploring this evening. 
And this is a this is a verse uh, about uh, a bhikkhu, about a monk, um, who after returning from his uh, daily alms round and then eating his meal in the woodland thicket where he practiced every day, he would go down to a nearby pond <coughs> and sniff a red lotus. When the deva, who uh, lived in that same woodland thicket, saw this, she thought, having received a meditation subject from the Buddha and entered into the forest to meditate, this bhikkhu is instead meditating on the scent of flowers. If his craving for scent increases, it will destroy his welfare. Let me draw near and reproach him. So, out of compassion and wishing to stir up a sense of urgency in the monk to practice in the right way, the deva addressed the monk in verse as follows. And the uh, title of this uh, short sutta is called The Thief of Scent. And it's in a dialogue form. And the deva speaking. When you sniff a lotus flower, an item that has not been given, this is one factor of theft. You, dear sir, are a thief of scent. And the bhikkhu responds, I do not take, I do not damage, I sniff the lotus from afar. So for what reason do you say that I am a thief of scent? One who digs up the lotus stalks, one who damages the flowers, one of such rough behavior, why is he not spoken to? And the deva responds, When a person is rough and fierce, badly soiled like a nursing cloth, I have nothing to say to him. But, to, but it's to you that I ought to speak. For a person without blemish, always in quest of purity, even a mere hair's tip of evil, evil appears as big as a cloud. And the bhikkhu responds, Surely, spirit, you understand me, and you have compassion for me. Please, O spirit, speak to me again whenever you see such a deed. And the deva responds with a kind of, I felt, surprise ending when I first read this. We don't live with your support, nor are we your hired servant. You, bhikkhu, should know for yourself the way to a good destination. <laughs> then that bhikkhu, stirred up by that deva, acquired a sense of urgency. The understanding that various experiences of stress, of suffering, and the experience of ease are a result of our kama, are a result of our actions, our actions of thought and speech and deed, right here and now in this lifetime, and on back and back and back. This is kama. This is our kama. We're born, we spring out of the womb of Kama. And even though we may or may not like it at times, we're the undeniable heirs of our Kama. So for instance, as soon as we've spoken words or performed any action, we've totally lost control over it. And yet, it remains with us and in some way inevitably returns to us as what could be called our due inheritance. So what does this mean? We could say with everything that happens and the resultant ease or dis-ease in our mind, in our heart, that this ease or dis-ease is the outcome, meaning the response or the reaction of our own mind's relationship to all of the internal and external happenings. 
In other words, our suffering and our happiness in this life in any given moment is due to our own mind, meaning our motivations, our intentions, and the consequent actions, our wholesome or unwholesome reactions to internal and external phenomena. Our ease and happiness, our dis-ease and suffering is due to the motivation, the intentions, and the subsequent actions, the deeds of our mind, body, and speech. Not due to our wishes, not due to our hopes or our dreams about ourselves, and not due to some other person or some outer antagonistic or seemingly mysterious, strange, or foreign world. In its powerful potential to bring good or bad results, easeful or difficult results, kama can be compared to food. Some foods are good, bringing and promoting health when we eat them at the right time and in the right amount. While some foods are harmful and can bring disease or may even be poisonous or maybe even deadly. So we pay attention to the thoughts. We pay attention to the intention behind, underneath, the potential action. And we feed ourselves, and thus others as well. We feed ourselves healthy food, and others healthy food. We create healthy karma. As awakening beings, our practice continues to develop our capacity to see the truth and, and how things occur, how things unfold, and to see their nature. As this comes clearer and clearer through our direct experience within our own body-mind continuum, we quite naturally find that the intentions, the motivations in the mind more and more often lead to wholesome, responsive, creative choices rather than to unwholesome, reactive, destructive choices. One of the great benefits of our practice comes as a sense of fulfillment, joy and harmony as we come to understand and live our understanding, knowing that we in fact are the owners or the heirs of our kama. And that in knowing this, we can and actually do actively create and fashion our life. And the more clearly we know our motivations, our intentions, the more clearly we have the possibility of creating a deeper, sustaining, and more pervasive experience of well-being throughout our life. Understanding the law of kama and living our understanding offers us the potential experience of a sense of inner peace, and a sense of well-being and wholeness. If we live in ignorance, meaning ignoring or misunderstanding with the way of things, we're living in conflict and disharmony with the way of things. And so we're bound then to experience fear and anguish and grief, a sense of dissonance and confusion.
as this understanding takes root in us, begins to take root in us, and then takes deeper root, it actually has the power to free us from fear. When, in fact, with everything that happens within us and around us, we begin to see that we only meet ourselves. We only meet our own mind. What is there to fear? The heart, the mind, begins to relax. And we begin to know that we can change our mind. We truly begin to know that we're not trapped running around and around and around on the karmic wheel. It's as though we're all artists. But instead of canvas and paint or clay or maybe music or pencil and pen and paper as our creative medium, it's our very mind, body, and heart and the immediacy of our life experience that that are the materials of our creative expression. And so again, one of the great benefits of our practice comes as a sense of fulfillment, joy, and harmony as we come to understand and live our understanding, knowing that we, in fact, are the owners or the heirs of our kama. And that this knowing, that in this knowing, we can and do actively create and fashion our life. And that the more clearly we know our motivation, the more clearly we know our intentions, the more clearly we have the possibility of creating a deeper, sustaining, and more pervasive experience of well-being throughout our life. The Buddha considered mental kama as the most important and the most far-reaching in its effect. Because as, as well as mental kama being what shapes our inner reality, thought precedes all of our actions of body and speech. The flavor of our thoughts, wholesome or unwholesome, are conditioned by our intentions, are conditioned by our motivations. Our motivations are conditioned by our view, our understanding. With our views often maybe showing up as our beliefs and our preferences, which are what direct our motivations, what direct our intentions and the resultant thoughts which potentially then flow out into words and actions. So, just simply and briefly, what does this mean? If we cling to the view, if we cling to the understanding of ourself, of other beings and things, and even situations, experiences, and places as being independent, separate, and static, meaning unchanging, we're motivated by misunderstanding and ignorance. What's called wrong view in the Buddhist teachings. Ignorance meaning ignoring the truth of things. And with this wrong view, this misunderstanding, our intentions, our motivations are coming from a very self-centered, disconnected, non-harmonious, unhealthy, unwholesome place and will inevitably bring suffering to ourself and to others. If we have the understanding, if one is experientially through practice growing into the understanding that ourselves other beings, all things, situations, experiences, and places are totally interdependent and arise only because of various causes and conditions 
coming together. And that in fact, causes and conditions themselves are also always in flux. That no thing, that nothing, no thing abides independently or separately or is static. Our intentions, our motivations come from what is called right view. And so our thoughts and the subsequent flow of words and actions all come from a place of harmony and a lightness of being and are appropriately responsive in any given situation and consequently then are beneficial in both overt and in subtle ways in relationship to ourselves and in relationship to others. And again, some words from the Buddha about wrong and right view. And he's uh, speaking to his monks here. He says, monks, when there is wrong view, bodily kama created as a result of that view, verbal kama created as a result of that view, and mental kama created as a result of that view, as well as intentions, aspirations, wishes, and mental proliferations, all are all productive of results that are undesirable, unpleasant, disagreeable, yielding no benefit, but conducive to suffering. On what account? On account of that pernicious view. It's like a margosa seed or the seed of a bitter gourd planted in moist earth. The soil and water taken in as nutriment are wholly converted into a bitter taste, an acrid taste, a foul taste. Why is that? Because the seed is not good. And then he goes on. Monks, when there is right view, bodily karma created as a result of that view, verbal karma created as a result of that view, mental karma created as a result of that view, as well as intentions, aspirations, wishes, and mental proliferations, are all yielding of results that are desirable, pleasant, agreeable, producing benefit, conducive to happiness. On what account? On account of those good views. It's like a seed of the sugar cane, a seed of wheat, or a fruit seed which has been planted in moist earth. The water and soil taken in as nutriment are wholly converted into sweetness, into refreshment, into delicious taste. On what account? On account of that good seed. An important aspect of right view is what we call self, which is often, not always, but often, um, uh, is a reference to this body as self. We've talked some about this during this retreat. This body, which is actually made up of many elements, with all of them being in continual flux. And as we uh, explored briefly um, during one of the uh, morning reflection periods, the four elements as experiential characteristics. And I'd like to just remind you of these. The earth element as experiential characteristics, hardness, roughness, heaviness, softness, smoothness, lightness, the water element as experiential, directly experiential characteristics, flowing and cohesion, the fire element as direct experiential characteristics, heat or warmth, coolness or coldness, the, the wind or air element as direct experiential characteristics, the, the experience of supporting, the sensation of supporting, and the sensation of pushing. This experiential understanding 
of the body can be an important and an illuminating step on the path towards right view in relationship to the supramundane understanding of not-self, of the impersonality of all things, including this body. The Buddha spoke about actions without an actor, doings without a doer. Within this essentially impersonal karmic process, our actions are like the seeds that are planted and then transformed by the shifting patterns of our life. Some seeds are cultivated and nourished. Some seeds may be dormant for many years, maybe many lifetimes, until the exact a combination of causes and conditions arise to germinate them. And always the fruit will bear a direct relationship to the seed. And the metaphor that's often used in relationship to this is that apple seeds bring apples into the world. Lettuce seeds bring lettuce into the world. A loving act at some point, ends up bearing loving fruit. And an angry or a hateful act produces hateful fruit. Not self, impersonality behind our actions, doesn't discount our responsibility for the things that we do. Kama is a very powerful force that inevitably makes itself felt. We need to couple our understanding of selflessness with a very mindful and very respectful attention to our motivations and actions and their karmic fruit. When we begin to understand more deeply that Kama is based on intentions, based on motivation. We begin to see the enormous and important responsibility that we have to become aware of our intentions, to become aware of the motivations that precede our actions. If we're unaware of the motives in our mind, when unwholesome, unskillful intentions arise, we may unmindfully act on them and consequently create the conditions for immediate or some future suffering. And some words from Padmasambhava, who is said to be the person who brought the Buddhist teachings to Tibet and Bhutan. He said, Though your vision is as vast as the sky, your attention to the law of Kama should be as fine as a grain of barley flour. Mindfulness of our own intentions before we speak or act, and also awareness of the karmic fruit of our words and actions once they've been said and performed has the effect of broadening our field of choice as we work, as we practice to purify and to transform the heart, the mind, and actions. When we mindfully experience the effect of our actions, we see, for instance, that extending generosity, loving kindness, and compassion towards others it comes back to us. And we see and feel the effects of approaching the world with aggression or anger or greed or grasping. 
An important point to consider in relationship to these teachings and practices is that it's not so important where your present suffering came from, but where you take it from here. Very important, really. Meaning, what's most important is how you approach the situation in this moment. So, for instance, the appropriate and healthy and wholesome response to suffering, whatever the cause of it may be, is compassion. As we traverse this path through our practice, we clearly begin to see and to know that there's a refuge, so to say. A refuge where the suffering of confusion and fear and anger and resistance and discontent, it's a very long list, where this all can be dispelled. And that refuge is through our good deeds. Refuge from this perspective is in wholesome motivations, wholesome intentions, thoughts, words, and performing wholesome actions. As we take this refuge, there comes to be a growing confidence in the great protecting power of good deeds that we've done in the past and a growing courage to perform more wholesome deeds right now, even in the midst of what might be some hardship in our current life. Our practice itself This incredible training of the heart, of the mind that we're all involved in, is a very good deed. The best, really. And the essential ground for the blossoming of wholesomeness throughout all aspects of our life. One of the things that's been uh, quite important for me in understanding Kama is that it's always the right time to perform wholesome actions. It's always the right time to do good deeds. It's never too late. And so we practice this. And it becomes established in us. It becomes a refuge. And at some point we know for sure, as was said by one of the Buddhist disciples, and these are uh, his or her words, I'm not sure if it was a monk or a nun, More and more ceases the misery and evil rooted in the past. And this present life, I try to make it spotless and pure. What else then can the future bring other than increase of the good? As this becomes more and more a certainty in our mind, the heart, the mind, becomes more tranquil and more serene. And through our practice, we gain the great strength of a calm, focused mind and a patient heart and the growing evenness and balance of equanimity in relationship to the various challenges and the various difficulties that come up in our practice and come up in our life as a whole. As the refuge of doing good deeds becomes our way, our deeds become our friend rather than our adversary. Even if sometimes the immediate result of our deeds might bring us maybe some sorrow or maybe some discomfort or maybe some pain, maybe through the way others treat us or through some upheaval or some turmoil in our life or maybe in some surprising or some unrecognizable phenomena that shows up in our practice. And sometimes the results of our good deeds may not be at all what we expected, not what we had in mind. Results that maybe seem contrary to what we might think our intention or our motivation was. Many years ago, I had a therapist uh, who would sometimes say to me, or actually more accurately say for me at appropriate times, 
this isn't what I had in mind. (laughs) Which would always kind of stop me in my tracks and move me to take a look. Move me to take a very close look at my motivations and my expectations. And most importantly in that moment, to simply be with what was occurring with as open a heart and as open a mind and as clear a mind as was possible at that time. If we make suffering our teacher, then in a sense it becomes our friend. And maybe sometimes a kind of stern or maybe in a certain way kind of a demanding teacher, yet potentially a truthful and a well-intended friend. We learn about ourselves, which seems to be our most difficult subject. The teachings of Kama and the understanding therein can imbue us with a very powerful motivation to free ourselves from Kama, to free ourselves from the actions that again and again throw us into repeated suffering, to free ourselves in this very life from repeatedly being born or repeatedly being reborn into the realm of suffering. I'd like to read a section uh, in relation to what we're talking about, this discussion on Kama, a section from an autobiography that beautifully, I think, illuminates uh, our discussion. And this is from um, uh, a book called And There Was Light by Jacques Lucirane. Jacques Lucirane was uh, uh, involved in the French resistance movement during the Second World War. It was a great surprise to me to find myself blind, and being blind was not at all as I imagined it, nor was it as the people around me seemed to think of it. They told me that to be blind meant not to see. Yet how was I to believe them when I saw? Not at once, I admit, not in the days immediately after the operation. For at that time I still wanted to use my eyes. I followed their usual path. I looked in the direction where I was in the habit of seeing before the accident. And there was anguish, a lack, something like a void which filled me with what grown-ups call despair. Finally, one day, and it was not long in coming, I realized that I was looking in the wrong way. It was as simple as that. I was making something very like the mistake people make who change their glasses without adjusting themselves. I was looking too far off and too much on the surface of things. At this point, some instinct made me change course. I began to look more closely, not at things, but at a world closer to myself, looking from an inner place to one further within, instead of clinging to the movement of sight toward the world outside. Immediately, the substance of the universe drew together, redefined and peopled itself anew. I was aware of a radiance emanating from a place I knew nothing about, a place which might as well have been outside me as within. But radiance was there, or to put it more precisely, light. It was a fact, for light was there. I felt indescribable relief and happiness so great it almost made me laugh. Confidence and gratitude came as if a prayer had been answered. I found light and joy at the same moment, and I can say without hesitation that from that time on, light and joy have never been separated in my experience. I have had them or lost them together. I saw light and went on seeing it, though I was blind. I said so, but for many years I think I did not say it very loud. Until I was nearly 14, I remember calling the experience which kept renewing itself inside me my secret and speaking of it only to my most intimate friends. I don't know whether they believed me, but they listened to me, for they were my friends. What I told them had a greater value than being merely true. It had the value of being beautiful, a dream, an enchantment, almost like magic. 
The amazing thing was that it was not magic for me at all, but reality. I could no more have denied it than people with eyes can deny what they see. I was not like myself, I knew that, but I bathed in it as an element which blindness had suddenly brought much closer. I could feel light rising, spreading, resting on objects, giving them form, then leaving them. Withdrawing or diminishing is what I mean, for the opposite of light was never present. Sighted people always talk about the night of blindness, and that seems to them quite natural. But there's no such night, for at every waking hour, and even in my dreams, I lived in a stream of light. Without my eyes, light was much more stable than it had been with them. As I remember it, there were no longer the same differences between things lighted brightly, less brightly, or not at all. I saw the whole world in light, existing through it and because of it. Still, there were times when the light faded, almost to the point of disappearing. It happened every time I was afraid. If instead of letting myself be carried along by confidence and throwing myself into things, I hesitated, calculated, thought about the wall, the half-open door, the key in the lock, if I said to myself that all these things were hostile and about to strike or scratch, then without exception I hit or wounded myself. The only way to move around the house, the garden, or the beach was by not thinking about it at all, or thinking as little as possible. Then I moved between obstacles the way they say bats do. What the loss of my eyes had not accomplished was brought about by fear. It made me blind. Anger and impatience had the same effect, throwing everything into confusion. The minute before I knew just where everything in the room was, but if I got angry, things got angrier than I. They went and hid in the most unlikely corners, mixed themselves up, turned turtle, muttered like crazy men, and looked wild. As for me, I no longer knew where to put hand or foot. Everything hurt me. This mechanism so worked, worked so well that I became cautious. When I was playing with my small companions, if I suddenly grew anxious to win, to be the first at all costs, then all at once I could see nothing. Literally, I went into fog or smoke. I could no longer afford to be jealous or unfriendly because as soon as I was, a bandage came down over my eyes and I was bound hand and foot and cast aside. All at once a black hole opened and I was helpless inside it. But when I was happy and serene, approached people with confidence and thought well of them, I was rewarded with light. So is it surprising that I loved friendship and harmony when I was very young? I always knew where the road was open and where it was closed. I had only to look at the bright signal which taught me how to live. All of us, whether blind or not, are terribly greedy. We want things only for ourselves. Even without realizing it, we want the universe to be like us and give us all the room in it. But a blind child learns very quickly that this cannot be. He has to learn it, for every time he forgets that he's not alone in the world, he strikes against an object, hurts himself, and is called to order. But each time he remembers, he is rewarded for everything comes his way. And closing the talk with some words from the Buddha. All conditions have mind as forerunner, mind as master, are accomplished by mind. Whatever one says or does with an unclear mind brings suffering in its wake, just as the cartwheel follows the ox's hoof. Whatever one says or does with a clear mind brings happiness in its wake, just as the shadow follows its owner. And the Buddha goes on to say, Therefore, one should reflect repeatedly upon one's own mind in this way. 
for a long time the sanctity or purity of this mind has been destroyed by greed, by hatred, and by delusion. And as the Buddha tells us, it is by mental defilement beings are defiled. It is by mental purification that beings are purified. And let's sit for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.